Now, we're not going to read it to begin, but at least you got it ready there. Um, so put your phone on flight mode, get ready um, to hear God's Word as it's preached. Not because I'm the one doing the work, but He's the one doing His work by His Spirit. But to catch you up, we're in a series um, in the book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, and in the story of Exodus, we have God's chosen people, the Israelites, enslaved in a place called Egypt, which I'm sure you've heard of the nation of Egypt. And God's people are under brutal slavery. Uh, the, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, um, hates God's people. And this young man, Moses, comes up with an idea. He's going to try and lead the people out of Egypt. And he rises up one day and strikes down an Egyptian guard and kills him and then freaks out, buries him, tries to hide it, and then his own people reject him. He flees Egypt and his attempt at trying to liberate his people goes horribly wrong. He spent 40 years in Egypt and then he moves into the desert of the Midian. And while he's in Midian, he finds a woman, he gets married, he settles down, he becomes a shepherd. And then everything changes again. After 40 years of stability in the desert, as much stability as a desert shepherd has, he's on his way with Jethro, his father-in-law's flock of sheep, and he meets God in the middle of the desert in the form of a burning bush. And when he meets God, God gives him an incredible message, the message that he has seen the hardship of his people, and that he is coming to rescue them. That he's actually going to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham a long time ago, 400 years earlier, and take the people from slavery into the land of the Canaanites, the Parasites, and the other ites. And he's going to put them in that land, and he's going to protect them and love them and be their God, and, he will, and they will be his people. But then God says, uh, and he ch- kind of changes the tone and says, And I'm sending you. So Moses probably would have been sitting there going, oh, this is great. Finally, we're going to have liberation. And then he realizes it's going to come through him. And this is in Exodus chapter 3 that this all happens. And from Exodus 3 all the way up to Exodus 4, 17, we have this long dialogue between Moses and God. It's, It's one conversation that goes for a long time, basically with Moses saying, not me, send anyone but me. Um, he says to God, who am I? And God says to him, well, obviously like nothing, but I will be with you. And then he says, well, who are you? And, and he says, well, I am the I am, the eternal God, the, the one that wasn't ever made, has always been. And then Moses comes up with another excuse and he says, well, the elders of Israel, they won't listen to me. And God says, yes, they will. And Moses is like, no, they won't. And they kind of have this back and forth. And then uh, Moses says, okay, well, I can't even speak well. I've got no good words. And God says, I made your mouth. You know, I'm in control of this. And then finally Moses says, send someone else, please. And God relents and uses Moses' own brother, Aaron. And Dave, when he preached on this sermon, says that when God calls us to do something, he always supplies all that we need. So he gives Moses this incredible call, but says, I will be with you. And he gives Moses elders. And then he gives Moses these three signs that Dave didn't have enough time to dip into last week. And that's all well and good in theory. That, you know, this idea that whatever task God has called you to, whatever thing he's, you know, set out before you, he will be with you and he'll give you all that you need. It sounds good in theory until you start having to do it in practice. And this passage that we're going to get into today is all about the difficulty of obedience. 
And I'm going to give you the tagline of the sermon right up front in case I pass out because I'm feeling a little bit head spinny. I haven't slept a whole lot in the past week. Took some sleeping tablets on the plane. Still think they're affecting me. So here's the main point. So if, you, if something happens to me, you've got it. Ready? Here's the point of the sermon. We're going to get to the reading of the passage and everything. But I'm going to give you this straight up now. Following our sovereign God, following our sovereign God requires... Difficult obedience. Following our sovereign God requires difficult obedience. There's some obediences which are easy. Like if you come past a power box and it says, warning, high voltage, do not touch, electrocution will follow. That's easy. Okay, that makes sense. But most of the Christian life is difficult obedience. Because we are born sinners. Look out all across the world. I've been to a few different countries now. Wherever I go, I meet human beings. And whenever I meet a human being, it's a little sinner. Someone that's prone to disobedience. Right? I never taught my kids to sin. Okay? I didn't teach them to lie. I didn't teach them to steal. But you give them a command, don't do this or do this. And what do they do? The opposite. And the reality is, is that we never really grow out of it. We just get better at hiding it or shaping it or molding it. But in our hearts, we are prone to disobedience. Whether you're a believer or not, we all struggle with this thing. And so this passage today is going to confront us a little bit with this idea of obedience and what does that look like. To go through the passage, um, it's, it's a longer one, but it's actually... Seven different scenes. Um, it really goes really quickly. We've been going slowly, walking through this conversation, and then it just goes boom, 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 boom. It's more like a montage. So think Rocky. You know, he's going to fight. Uh, what's his name? Apollo Creed. And to get ready for the fight, he starts all his training, and he's running, and he's boxing the meat bag, and he tries to make it to the top of the steps, and then he fails, and he boxes the meat again. Then, and finally, he gets to the end. And we use, the film directors use this montage scene to give you character development in a short period of time. Okay, a lot of development, short period of time. That's what this passage is. So as we're going through today, think Rocky. And if you haven't seen it, that's your homework. Okay, so <laughs> Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, that's good. Exodus chapter 4. Alrighty. Lord, give us grace. Um, I'm going to pray. Uh, Dear Lord, we pray and ask that you, our sovereign God, the ruler of the universe, would give us grace this morning. You are so gracious and kind. You long and desire for us to obey you, but we need your help. We need your help even to listen to your word being read. We need your help to understand it. Would you open our eyes, our heart, and our mind to taste and see that you are good? In Jesus' name, amen. So, following our sovereign God requires difficult obedience. Point one, difficult obedience. So it should be simple to follow the sermon. Difficult obedience, point one. We're going to go through it just scene by scene. So verse 18 to 20. I kind of put the scenes together into four scenes rather than seven. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. 
And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt. For all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Difficult obedience is our point. The first kind of sub-point is this, the difficult obedience of leaving. Imagine how hard it would have been for Moses. His life settled 40 years in the desert, 40 years married to this lady, 40 years raising his family, 40 years a shepherd. He'd spent 40 years previously to that as a prince of Egypt, grown accustomed with living the palace lifestyle, but he was a fugitive, an exile. And now God has called him to the difficult task of leaving and going back. And so Moses is going to gather his lovely wife, Zipporah, He's going to gather his sons, all their belongings that they can take, get on a donkey. And you've got to imagine, like we think, you're know, traveling, okay, I just got on a plane and, you know, 30 hours of travel and we went all the way across the world. They're going to walk through the desert, through the heat of the day and the cool of the night, animals, potential raiders, things like that that will meet them on their way. And every step that they will take is a step away from comfort and a step into difficulty. It's a step away from the known to the unknown, or a step away from safety and into danger. The difficult obedience of leaving. But also we see that there's the difficult obedience of saying goodbye. It's not just hard for Moses and his wife to leave. It, it would have been hard for Jethro too. You imagine this man, he, he, you know, in this culture, family is everything. And he's found a good man. Moses is a good man, a faithful man, a, a wise man, a courageous man. And he's found a man to look after his daughter. And that man comes to him and says, may I please go and see if my brothers are still alive. And note what Jethro says in verse 18. Go in peace. It's a beautiful expression. It's a beautiful moment in their relationship where Moses, uh, Jethro is recognizing what God has called Moses to do and he gives him his blessing to go. But just because it's short, don't underestimate how difficult it is to say goodbye. As any of you who would know who've had to say goodbye to friends or family that have left for other jobs, careers, churches, or potentially you've had to see your kids leave the home and get married, I think I underestimated this when I was a young guy getting married at 20 and marrying my wife Maddie when she was 19, stealing her away from her family. There's a difficulty in going, but there's also a difficulty in saying goodbye. And one of the cool things about this passage is it, it kind of gives us a little bit of a, a preparation for us as a church. Because the difficult obedience of leaving and saying goodbye here. Um, is going to help us to be prepared for when we have to say goodbye in some short amount of time when we go out to plant a church. You see, it's going to take courage for some of us to stay and it's going to take courage for some of us to go. The difficult obedience of leaving will be upon my life and Maddie's life and our kids. 
We'll have to leave the, the daily fellowship, the weekly fellowship of this local church that we love, our favorite church in the world, and leave. And some of you will join us and will step away from the safety and comfort and peace of being here into the unknown. And we'll plant the gospel, God willing, in Parramatta. And every week we won't know what's going to happen. We won't know who's going to turn up. We won't have the comforts, the coffee machines. We won't have the incredible band. We won't have the great preaching of Dave and Brendan. We'll have, you'll have me. And you'll have, you know, a school hall. And there'll be difficulties. And it'll be difficult for you to take the step of faith and leave. Like Moses, when he followed the call of God upon his life. Finally, he did obey, by the way, which is great. But it will also be difficult for you guys to say goodbye, to say go in peace when potentially your best friend in your gospel community leaves, when your closest spiritual friend leaves this church. And we've got to be prepared for those moments when the call of God comes upon someone else's life and we say, go in peace, like Jethro. Following our sovereign God requires difficult obedience. But although it would have been extremely hard to leave, the journey has really only just begun for Moses. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor in America, says it like this. It looks like so much has happened, but really Moses is only on the starting line. You see, God has told him what to do. He's going to have to go into Pharaoh's court and speak to the most powerful man in the world and tell him, let my people go. Moses has set his face toward Egypt, but he's only on the starting line. And God is going to make his obedience even more difficult. Let's read verse 21. So Moses has left with his family, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Huh? <laughs> you can imagine Moses. He's, he's just taken off the starting line. He's with his family. He's halfway along on his way to Midian. And then God interrupts him and says, actually, Moses, guess what? It's not going to work. You are going to go into Pharaoh's court and I am going to harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. I gave you those signs for the elders of Israel to prove to them that I'm really with you. Well, guess what? You're going to do them before Pharaoh. And Moses is probably like, yeah, great. The signs, that's going to convince him. The signs will not work. This is the difficult obedience of no fruit. You see, Moses is being thrown into a situation where he has to obey God, but he's not going to see the results he wants to see. You might be thinking, why? Why is God doing this? Why, why would God go to all this trouble, all this conversation with Moses, and then tell him it's not going to work? Well, do you remember the tagline I gave you? Following our sovereign God requires difficult obedience. The reality is this. Our God is a sovereign God. Our God is a God who does what he pleases. Our God is a God who's completely and utterly in control of every and any circumstance. 
There is no grain of sand, no molecule of the air. There is no country, no place that is outside the reach of his control. Every star, every galaxy, every person, and every human heart. And every circumstance that goes on. And God is demonstrating to Moses, and he will demonstrate to the Egyptians, that he is in control. Even, even in the circumstances which look the worst. Phil Riken says it like this. From beginning to end, the entire exodus was the result of God's sovereign decree. The whole agonizing and then exhilarating experience of slavery and freedom was part of his perfect will. It was God's will to bring his people out of Egypt. It was also his good pleasure to keep them there as long as he did. It doesn't sit well, I think, excuse me, with our modern mindset. You might be coming in thinking, is that what God's like? He hardens people's hearts. He, he tells you to do one thing and then says it's not going to work, but you've got to do it anyway. Yes and yes. It doesn't excuse our human responsibility, never. The Bible never says, well, God is all in control and therefore we have no choice or no power. No, the Bible never has that. It's always a tension. God's in control and we are responsible for all of our decisions. Yet, the Bible always maintains he is completely in control. And so God is demonstrating to Moses the difficult obedience of no fruit by saying even the conquering of Pharaoh and his heart will be part of my plan. I will harden his heart for a time so that things get as bad as they possibly can get so that when I soften it, or so that I will break it and then you will go. He's going to display his glory through hardening Pharaoh's heart. And that's a difficult thing to comprehend as a 21st century person, that, that God can and does use difficult circumstances for his glory, that he can even use sin and disobedience for his glory, that he can use hard you know, circumstances which look like they're never going to work or anything good's going to happen for his glory. Peter N. says it like this, The deliverance of Israel from Egypt is entirely God's doing and under his complete control. The impending exodus is a play in which God is author, producer, director, and principal actor. We don't follow a God of our own making. We follow a sovereign God, the I Am. And there are going to be times in your life, and you've probably already experienced this, when you follow our sovereign God, And he calls you to some level of obedience. And you're going to have to make a choice. Do I do what he's called me to do, even though I can't see the fruit, even though I don't see the reward, even though I don't see the change? Or do I give up and throw in the towel? Can you imagine what Moses was thinking in that moment? (laughs) I've just packed my whole family in the car, donkey car, and I'm on my way to Egypt. And now you're telling me it's not going to work? I don't know, if God came to me halfway through the church plant and said, no one's going to come for 12 months, <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna, 
look pathetic. There would be a temptation in my heart to just think, let's, let's just leave it. Let's leave it to someone else. Patrick can plan it. I'm coming back. And that's, just, that, that's my life. That's one of the things I'm thinking about. But in your own circumstances, will you continue to train your children to obey even when it seems like a futile task? Will you remain celibate and joyful in your singleness as others fall in love and get married around you? Will you maintain your integrity in the workplace as everyone else seems to bend the rules and break the law and gets promoted? Will you keep coming to church every week even though you don't feel 100% connected? There's difficult obediences that God is going to call you to do where you won't see the results because he's going to demonstrate his sovereign power in those circumstances, and you might not see it till the end. But I have good news. Well, that is good. It, that is already good news. But I have even better news. The, the, the good news is this, is that we don't just follow a sovereign God. We're not just called, oh, it's not there, sovereign church. We follow a God of sovereign grace, a God that not only delights to be in control, but delights to love his people in the process. Let's read on to verse 22 and 23 and see what this sovereign, all-powerful, almighty, all-controlling God is like. Look at verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I just want to back up on that phrase for a second there. He's just demonstrated his sovereignty and power, and then in the next breath, he's demonstrating his particular and gracious love for his people. You see, he's going to demonstrate his power through a circumstance where there'll be no fruit for a long time. It's going to get worse. But he's affirming to Moses and the people of God that they are his firstborn son. This is the first time in the Bible that phrase is used and it's a theme that's carried throughout the rest of Scripture. That God does not just deal with us as a boss with an employee or a maker with a a pot of clay, but as a father with children. That for those who are in his hand, those who are called and redeemed and loved and chosen, you are a child. There's an intimacy, a relational joy that is in those words. My firstborn son. In the ancient culture, the firstborn son was the son of highest honor and privilege. The son that received the most inheritance. The son who the family line went through first and foremost. The representative son. And God is declaring that Israel, though in slavery in this moment, are his chosen people his one and only son it's incredible grace they'd most likely forgotten about him for 400 years they they potentially had given up they potentially had grown bitter and weary they're potentially in their slavery thinking where are you lord where's this promise to abraham aren't we your chosen people and yet god is declaring you are my firstborn son We don't just worship a sovereign God alone, but he's sovereign in his grace as well. 
Let's keep reading. Verse 23. So I'll read verse 23 again. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Again, in our culture, I think it's very difficult to think that obedience and service is grace. So I said God is not just a sovereign God, he's a God of sovereign grace. And then he says, what's he going to do? Israel's my firstborn son, then what am I going to do? I'm going to liberate them from slavery so that they may have a utopia, they may do whatever they want, they may buy up, you know, do, you know, live a lavish lifestyle. No, he says that they may serve me. It kind of cuts against, it, even, it almost feels immoral, I think, in our day and age. What? I'm a servant? I, I will lay down my desires for those of a master? My God is my master? Yet, serving God is his grace to us as well. If God saved us and let us alone to do whatever we pleased, that would actually be his punishment to us. Service is actually freedom. True freedom is not the absence of restraint, but the right restraints. Musicians need chords to play good music. Uh, There's many examples in life where true restraint actually provides more freedom. I see that with my parenting and children. We see that in relationships. If you had an open marriage, how would you have the freedom and intimacy to actually have that beautiful one-to-one bond where you are pure and clean and separate? True freedom comes with constraint. And God's holy constraint to us is that we are his servants. As Dave said, he didn't like this expression because it sounded too cheesy, but we are saved to serve. So the difficult obedience of no fruit is that Moses has to do something, he's called to do something, where he doesn't know what the outcome will be. Well, actually, he does know. It's going to be really bad. It's going to be really hard. But it comes with this promise, this promise that, no, don't worry, you're saved. You're my son, and you will serve me. So let's kind of put a few of these things together. Following our sovereign God requires difficult obedience. The difficult obedience of leaving, the difficult obedience of saying goodbye, the difficult obedience of going and obeying where there is no fruit. That's point one, difficult obedience. It's our calling. But what happens if we disobey? What happens? Have you ever disobeyed I don't know, a teacher at school I was I was a I was a pretty good kid but every now and again in my school if you were repeatedly disobedient you would get what was called a bluey that was like a blue slip of paper where you were assigned somewhere to go and clean up in the playground you get a bluey and you have to hand it to the teacher walk around with a plastic bag and pick up the rubbish some people here may have had worse times at school and done some other things okay have you ever disobeyed your parents There's always some kind of punishment. Have you ever disobeyed in the workplace and been fired? Have you ever disobeyed in a relationship? 
cheated or done some other thing where it's broken down the relationship. This is point two, God's response to our disobedience. What happens if we disobey? Well, the sub-point, the first sub-point here is this, a warning. Look back to verse 23. This passage gives us a warning about our disobedience. It's a warning to Pharaoh. See, God in his grace comes with Moses and actually warns Pharaoh and he says to him, let my, first bo- let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. <laughs> is that something you believe about God, that God is a God who kills children? It can sound really wrong. It can sound shocking. Disobedience always leads to death. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, disobedience leads to death. This passage is a warning, a a humble warning from me to you, to anyone. Disobedience always leads to death. And God warns Pharaoh and says, if you continue to disobey, it will lead to the death of your firstborn son. But it's not just a warning for Pharaoh. It's not just for the people out there, those who don't know and love and follow God. Let's read on in verse 24 to 26. Here's a warning for God's people. The warning to Moses. This is one of the weirder sections in the Bible. Okay, Just as a warning to you before we read it. But we're going to read it because it's in here and it's God's word for us today. Look at verse 24. So the speech from God has ended. Verse 24. Now Moses has continued on his journey at a lodging place on the way. That's on the way to Egypt. So he's on his way. He's He's finally obeyed God. He's on his way. He's past the starting line. He's on his way to Egypt. The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. We have this really strange moment where God has been preparing this leader, Moses, the whole time for this difficult disobedience. He's just given him the speech, given, told him what's going to happen, even said, you're going to go to Pharaoh. And then it looks like in the text, it's actually hard to tell exactly what's happening to whom. But my best guess from the reading and the study is that God comes to Moses, to him, and somehow is seeking to put him to death. So whether Moses has been struck with some illness or he's in a trance or something is happening, but Zipporah knows Moses is about to die. And so somehow, I don't know how, Zipporah knows what I've got to do is circumcise someone. Okay, it's hard to tell in the text who that someone is, but Zipporah knows I've got to circumcise someone. And she takes out a flint. She circumcises most likely their firstborn son, Goshen, Cuts it, gets it. Like, oh, it's, yeah, it's in the box. It's good. Okay. And then, and then think, this is what I need to do. I need to fling it either on Moses' feet. 
Or it's actually likely a euphemism for Moses' male area too, so into his lap. And then, even more surprisingly, in this, in this weird transaction, that was the thing that then God relents and doesn't kill Moses and passes on. It's a strange scenario. <laughs> I was saying to guys in America, like, okay, so not only am I getting off a plane to preach um, and my pastor's going to Noosa to a resort, I'm preaching on the circumcision feet dangly passage. You know, it's like, how am I going to get through this passage without committing some immorality or sin or, in, you know, okay, I'm going to try. But what we actually have, it's sort of funny in our culture, but it is a very serious moment because it's likely that Moses has not circumcised his son. Now, back in Genesis, God spoke to Abraham, gave him the promise of the land, and then as a sign of their covenant partnership, their, their relationship, Genesis, oh, Genesis was to, Abraham was to circumcise all of his sons on the eighth day. It's a, it's a weird practice. It, it, you know, it sounds odd to us. Why would you do that? But it's a very visible indication that you are part of the people of God. Cut into your very own flesh is a sign and seal that you are identifying with the God of Israel. And it appears that Moses has failed to obey. Either he's disobeyed God and said, I will not do it, or he's delayed his obedience. I'll, I'll do it at some point. Either way, delayed obedience is disobedience. So Moses has disobeyed God and he's not done what he's meant to have done. And so God is coming to Moses to actually judge him and bring death upon him as a punishment for his sin, for excluding his son from the commonwealth of Israel. And a pattern we're going to see all throughout Exodus and throughout the rest of the Bible. Disobedience leads to death. And the only way to cover over disobedience that leads to death is through the shedding of blood. And so Zipporah somehow knows, maybe because her father was the priest, maybe because Moses had told her, somehow she knows that the shedding of this young boy's blood and and the, the spreading of the blood onto Moses will mean that God will pass over his sin. It's a warning passage. Disobedience leads to death. And it's a warning strangely enough, for anyone in the room who has not yet fully decided to lay down their life and follow Jesus Christ as Lord. Circumcision is very clear. you either in or you're out. By the physical mark on your body, you're either in or out. It's the same with Christianity. You are either in or you are out. You can be on the process of figuring things out with God, journeying and discovering. We love that as a church. We invite you into the conversation. Let's figure out the weird passages. Let's talk about these eternal realities. But you are either in or you're out. It's like um, circumcision is like a sign. It's like my wedding ring. Okay, It, It says... I'm taken, I'm in a relationship, I'm in a covenant relationship with this woman here and no one else is invited and back off. That's what my ring says. You know, if I'm at a bar or something, I get a drink and I've got my drink in my hand, it says back off, taken. I'm in with this one, with this lovely lady. That's what 
Christianity is like you're either in relationship with God, it's exclusive, there's no one else, there's no other gods, there's no mixing of Hinduism and Christianity or Islam and Christianity or New Age and Christianity. No, it's him and you alone with the body, the people together, or you're out. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was very intolerant, but he was true, and he loved people enough to tell them the truth. Are you in or are you out? This passage is a warning for you to assess where are you at. But for those of us who are in, you've made a covenant relationship with the Lord. You're a Christian. You you signify, yes, I love the Lord Jesus. Through his shed blood, I am purchased. I am saved. I'm an adopted child of God. Is there any area where you are delaying your obedience to, like Moses? Or you're being downright disobedient and you know it? This passage is a warning to you as well. The book of Hebrews is a great book of the Bible, and it continually warns that if you are in persistent, unrepentant sin, the warning is this, maybe you're not really in. You can't say, I'm married to you, God, and sleep around with the world. That's not how it works. So this is a warning. Is there any area of your life as well where you, like Moses, might be met by the Lord and you'd be found that you're not truly in? Following our sovereign God requires difficult obedience. It's not going to be all fine and dandy following him. It will require hard sacrifice, losing out. But he's our sovereign father who calls us into a beautiful, free, serving relationship with him. So what does God do with our disobedience? He punishes sin. uh, disobedience always leads to death but like I said before our God is a sovereign God but he's not just a sovereign God he's a God of sovereign grace we're going to read the rest of the passage and see what God does with Moses's disobedience from earlier back in chapter three if you remember back in chapter three God said to Moses in verse 16 Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I'll bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. God promised that, but then in... Chapter 4, verse 1, Moses said, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. God told Moses to do something, promised that it would happen, and Moses defies God directly and says, It will not happen. How does God react to that? Well, it's amazing that he doesn't strike Moses down right there. He's a God of grace. And then look at what happens. Once Moses finally obeys, this is what God does. He loves to reward obedience, even if it's late obedience. 
We're going to read verses 27 to 31. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So just to back up, this is kind of going back in time. God has told Aaron to meet Moses, okay? So he, that's Aaron, went and met with him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And, and Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he'd sent him to speak and all the signs that he commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron... Don't skip over this too quickly. Finally, Moses is obeying. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he'd seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is an ascendant and climactic moment in the montage. This is Rocky running up to the top of the steps and finally he's made it to the art gallery steps in Philadelphia and he pumps his fist and he's ready to fight Apollo Creed. The moment has happened. The stage is set. Moses has finally obeyed and God was pleased to make it happen. You see, even though Moses was late in obedience, he, by the grace of God, went with Aaron and the people actually listened and the elders actually obeyed and not only did they listen but they bowed down and they worshipped the Lord Moses needn't have worried because God promised and there's a point in here for us as well that when God promises to do something we needn't worry about the result because it's his word And he always does what he promises. Moses wasted a lot of time being anxious and fretful about the results. We need to learn from his example and trust in the God who makes his will happen. What does God do with Moses' disobedience? Well, in this case, he shows him grace upon grace. He allows him to make it all the way to the elders and to fulfill the task that God has given him. And... Isn't that the case in our life as well? How many times have you felt the Spirit of God move you, prompt you to evangelize and to tell someone about the hope and you, you squashed it? But finally, that time when you listen to the Spirit and you do it and you get to tell the gospel to someone and they hear the words and whatever the result is, God is still showing you grace in that moment, even though you are slow to obedience. It's the same with giving, with church attendance, with membership. It takes us time. We are weak and fragile. But God always loves to give us grace when we obey. And just a a side note, it's not the point of the passage, but I thought it was a good point when I read in um, someone else's sermon on this, Kevin DeYoung. And backing on to what was spoken about last week about trial and suffering and grief. Notice that nothing has happened yet, yet the elders of Israel are already worshipping. It's never too early to worship. They haven't seen liberation. They haven't moved an inch out of Egypt. Yet they bow their heads in response to God's word. And no matter your circumstance today, no matter what God is putting you through, whatever you know, Egypt moment that you are encompassed in at the moment, 
It's never too early to worship. He is always worthy of our worship, no matter the circumstance. So to pull everything together, our one sentence is this, to try and put this passage into our head, into our heart. Following our sovereign God requires difficult obedience. The obedience to leave and say goodbye. The obedience to do hard tasks. The obedience to become a Christian today. The obedience in our moral life. The obedience to worship him no matter what. Is your life characterized by difficult obedience? Or, more like my life, easy disobedience? It's so much easier to disobey than obey. In fact, today, even though, you know, we've tried through the Word of God, the the worship of God, the preaching, the fellowship, to inspire and to lead you to obey, most likely you will disobey by the end of the day. Most likely you will fall into some area of sin, and if not today, tomorrow. We can't do it. In and of our own strength, it is so much easier to disobey than obey. And that's why we need our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God said to Pharaoh, Israel's my firstborn son. If you do not let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. But 1,500 years later, with us in view and all the people of God in view, with all of our disobedience in view, he said, I will send my firstborn son. And Jesus came and lived the perfectly obedient life. And then on the cross, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the perfect one, who suffered every difficult disobedience with joy, his perfect blood was shed on the cross. Moses needed the blood of his son for God's wrath to pass over him in that moment at the lodging place. You and I need the blood of Jesus Christ to pass over our life and to protect us from the wrath of God. And what's more, we need his daily grace to train us to live for him for the rest of our lives. I want to read you Titus 2 to finish up. Because Titus 2 puts these two sections together. The grace of God in salvation, which trains us for godliness and obedience. Let's read it. It'll be on the screen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see the link 
your life is characterized by disobedience, easy disobedience, easy sin. My life is characterized by that. But God sent a ransom to save us and to cover all those disobediences. And then in his grace and his kindness, he calls us out to serve him like the people of Israel are called out to serve him. And it trains us to obey and to live a godly life in this present age. We need his grace every day. We need his power. We need his spirit. We need his word to help us to live out every difficult disobedience he puts in our path. It's only by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, it's frightening to think that you know all of our disobediences. It's crushing to think of all that you call us to do. I fall so far short. My brothers and sisters fall so far short. And we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, that his blood covers every sin. That no disobedience is put on our name. God, I pray and ask that if there's anyone here in this room this morning that is living a life of disobedience or delayed obedience, there's a known sin, a known pattern in their life that they are completely ignoring like Moses was, Lord, would you give them grace and help them to have eyes to see and repent even now? And Lord, I pray for us as, as, as we go about to all the difficult obediences of making disciples, of living a righteous and pure life in this world, would you give us grace to do that for your glory? And may you put your firstborn son firmly in our gaze. May we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we do not swerve to the left or to the right, but would he train us to live godly lives in this present age would you help us as a church to continue to be zealous for good works lord we need you we can't do it without you we plead with you give us the grace to follow you in every path you put before us our sovereign god in jesus name amen